0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, y'all. How are we doing? Good Good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be with you in person or uh, digitally as it may be. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 will be in verses 25 through 37. Somehow, in all the years that Crosspoint has existed, we don't actually have a sermon on this particular text on the Good Samaritan. And so I just saw that noticed that and said, you know what, We we need to fill in the blank there. And of course, the problem though is that while for just about any text, any pastor or preacher will Speak on, you feel a little bit inadequate. When I look at this passage, and as I've been studying this text this week, I've just been made just increasingly painfully aware uh, of how inadequate I am to speak on this. Um, but I think it's helpful. I think it's important for us, especially in this day, and this age that we live in, uh, to think deeply about this, this well-known, but I think little-understood, text so let's let me pray for us and uh, and then we'll get right to it father we thank you for your word we thank you for your kindness to us that you would speak to us that you would reveal anything about yourself to us let alone reveal to us how great your love is for sinners like like we are like we have been We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the work that your son has done that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be cared for, that we might be brought into your loving, merciful, compassionate, gracious care. Lord, help us as we read this text to be encouraged, maybe challenged and corrected. I pray that you would cause us to be a people that reflect the hope of the gospel. Even as we ourselves are the chief beneficiaries of of something so undeserving that you have done for each of us who trust in Jesus. Be with us now as we get into your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read, and I'm going to stop along the way and make some comments here and there. And then I've got three observations that I want us to consider from this text, the parable of the good Samaritan, as it's often known. Let me me start reading for us, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, meaning Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Let's pause here and just kind of take the lay of the land. What's going on? A lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. All right, let's pause, let's stop right there, let's examine that little concept. I want to give you, this is not one of my points from the sermon, this is not even the main point of this text, but this is, I think, helpful for us all to be on the same page with. The first rule of putting Jesus to the test, wait for it, is that you should not do that. You should not put Jesus to the test, right? You will get pantsed, and it will be in the Bible that you got pantsed by Jesus, okay? Okay? So you already have an idea of where this tale is going, okay? Here's a lawyer. Now, we may be thinking of a lawyer in terms of modern-day attorneys, you know, people that might represent us in a, in a courtroom or, or help us sign legal documents. I want you to think more of this lawyer as an expert in the law of God's people, which would be the Old Testament, in particular, the first five books of the Bible. He's a lawyer in that sense. He knows God's word. He knows what the Lord demands and expects of his people, or at least he should. And so he stands up in a sort of arrogance, I guess we would say, to put Jesus to the test. He's hoping to catch him in some sort of stumble around the answer to this this question. And he he wants to know, "What, what should I do to inherit eternal life? The the rewards of a righteous life. How do I I get from here to to my inheritance? To the rewards of righteousness that the Lord has in store for me? So Jesus flips the question on him, as he's wont to do. He doesn't really answer the question. Instead, he says, hey, lawyer, why don't you tell me what the law has to say? I have a feeling you probably know the answer to the question that you raised, so why don't you go ahead and give it to us? So the lawyer responds perfectly. He gives a great summary of just exactly what the law demands. And he uses two passages that are really well known in the Old Testament, in particular Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he he redirects to Leviticus, chapter 19, where there are two passages that tie in this idea of loving your neighbor. He says, the Lord rather, says through Moses, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, we might hear these two commands that our lawyer friend aptly summarizes for us. We might hear these as two separate two separate commands, two ideas that the Lord has brought down upon his people. You should love me and, while I think about it, you should love your neighbor. That's, that's very often how we think about it. That's how conjunctions like and tend to work. We think of these things as separate things that just happen to be thought of at the same time. But, but that's not really what's going on here. I hope you see just by the language that the Lord uses in these commands, especially the ones in Leviticus, that this second command to love your neighbor as yourself is deeply, intimately tied down to loving the Lord. In both instances, when the Lord directs his people, love your neighbor, he concludes, he justifies this command by saying, I am the Lord your God. So you, you really, as you hear these commands, you can't, you can't divorce them. You can't have one or the other. You can't think of these things as separate but really good ideas to merge together. They are very deeply linked. They are connected. And that's the testimony of all of scripture. It's especially the testimony of God's law. This is, how the Lord, this is what the Lord requires of his people, that they would be righteous, that they would be holy as he is holy. And of course, then in verse 28, you notice the subtle correction that Jesus offers to our lawyer friend. Jesus says, what's the law say? How do you understand it? The lawyer answers correctly, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, you're right, but he doesn't stop there. He says, do this. The implication being that this lawyer is very knowledgeable about what the Lord expects of his people. And yet, he hasn't hasn't quite brought it around full circle that it would be a part of how he lives. That he would actually follow through and and do these things. So let's see then what, what happens next. Verse 29, but he, again, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's a seemingly innocent question. It makes perfect sense if you're just reading that as just a generic sort of uh, response to the, the law that the Lord has implemented here. You know what? If you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, it makes sense that you would want to know who your neighbor is. That, that's sensible, that's reasonable. But Luke doesn't want us to walk away thinking that our lawyer friend is anything uh, close to innocent in this matter, right? Luke, Luke tells us exactly what's going on in his mind. It says that he desired to justify himself. He wanted to vindicate himself, to prove to Jesus that in all these matters, he is perfectly innocent. I want to show you how good at this I actually am. The second point that I'm about to give you is also not, part, not necessarily the point of the text. It's not necessarily... Uh, this, one, this one's free. When it, The first rule of trying to justify yourself before Jesus is this, and it will sound very familiar to you. You should not try to justify yourself before Jesus. It just doesn't... It will always backfire every time... You're just, you're never going to get where you think you're going, okay? You shouldn't justify yourself before Jesus, but our lawyer friend is very confident, and he boldly goes where virtually every man has gone before, but none should, and he attempts, he attempts to make his case before the Lord, and he thinks he's got him, and he asks a really witty, but now we understand, smart-alecky kind of question. Well, who is my neighbor? Ever think about that? Who, who actually, who even, can anyone know who my neighbor is? I want you to think about this question of his as you listen to the way that Jesus responds. I want you to, the, the, the tendency when we read this story is to focus on the Good Samaritan it's himself, the parable surrounding the Good Samaritan. The heading in my Bible says the parable of the Good Samaritan. But that's, there's so much more going on here, right? This is more than just a story about a, a, a Boy Scout. This is an answer. The Good Samaritan is a response to this question that's posed by this lawyer. Who is my neighbor? You need to be thinking about that question as as we continue. So verse 30, Jesus replied and gives him a story. I love how the Lord just, I'm going to tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a well-known road. It's about 17, 18 miles, though. It's a pretty long haul, and it's not the safest path you might want to travel at any given moment. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, hey, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him to the man who fell among the robbers. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So in this parable, we get two examples of, I guess, what we might call apathy, though it's much more active than that, you understand. This is a a deliberate action. Apathy seems... It feels kind of passive. You just chose not to do anything. But, but these two men, the priest and the Levite, they deliberately go out of their way to avoid this man half dead on the side of the road. It says that they went to the other side of the road. There's, a, there's an element of disdain in, in what they've done here. Uh, certainly disregard we get those two examples, this priest, this Levite, both of whom would be experts in the law. Experts. They, they would know, like our lawyer here, exactly what the Lord requires of his people. We get those two, and then we get another example, a third example of something totally different, though. This is an example in this Samaritan of compassion, of mercy, from an I mean, an incredibly unlikely source, you understand. Um, the Samaritans, maybe we don't really have, we think of Samaritan's Purse, or we think of Samaritan Ministries, or something like that. We just kind of think of Samaritans as sort of generic, not even people group, it's just kind of a person, right? Uh, but but some, Samaritans are, especially in this time and place, they, they are considered to be very unclean, uh, syncretistic, they, they merge their religious beliefs with the other pagan religions of, of the region. They're considered to be a sort of mongrel people, a half-breed. That's how Samaritans would be, would be seen here. These Samaritans are the descendants of Israelites who remained in the northern kingdom of Israel long after the, uh, the exile. Many of them stayed behind, or at least some did, or some returned back to Samaria, back to northern Israel, and then they continued to merge their practices, their families, with the Mesopotamian colonists in the area. These aren't your, these aren't your standard Israelites, and your standard Israelite kind of hated them for it. The, the, the Samaritan is a person with his own version of the law, his own version of history, of Israelite history, his own temple. This is a very distinct group of people very much looked down upon by your average Jew in the time of Jesus. But this this Samaritan, he he gives us some examples here of compassion, of mercy. He gives, he he takes personal initiative. Did you catch that? He he goes to, he goes out of his way, he goes to the half-dead man. And he personally cares for him. You know, wrapping somebody up in bandages, especially when they're half dead, that's a pretty involved process. And I'll wager that our Samaritan wasn't exactly a medic in the army walking around with a backpack full of gauze. Okay, For him to bandage this man up probably required his own clothes, at least, at least some of his own stuff. Our Samaritan, he's, he's, getting, he's getting down and in the dirt with this man wrapping him up going across the way to 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 care for this man himself he's not only showing personal initiative he is selfless he sets this man on his own animal now maybe they shared a donkey for the rest of the trip that seems pretty unlikely it's more likely that he he threw this man on his animal and then walked alongside him the rest of the way his sacrifice, the, 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 the care that he gives, is also very costly. He, he, he anoints him with oil, which is a way of certainly of soothing, of, of caring, of cleaning. He, he pours wine on this man's wounds, which is not some sort of frivolous, like, you know, uh, crazy idea. He's trying to disinfect his, his wounds uh, with, the, with the wine. He, he takes him to an inn where he then goes ahead and gives up what in this day would have been two full days wages to care for this man. And I was reading one estimate that suggested that two full days wages in this time would have been in, in this end the equivalent of roughly three weeks of care. Three weeks of room and board. Our, our, our Samaritan here, he is incredibly generous, incredibly sacrificial. He is going above and beyond to make sure that this half-dead man is provided for and cared for, even as the Samaritan leaves to continue about his business, knowing that he'll come back and then pay, I guess, the rest of the bill later if there is more? It's, it's an incredible juxtaposition, you understand, compared to these, this priest, compared to this Levite, what this Samaritan is willing to do. Um, but once again... Jesus offers here through this story a correction before he said, you should do this. You should, you should carry out the law here. He, he's much more overt, much more explicit. He, he goes so far as to correct the lawyer's question itself. The lawyer's original question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' response is a question to him. He says, who proved in this circumstance to actually be a neighbor? You asked a bad question here's a question that you should be asking instead. Let me ask it for you. What do you think the answer is? And of course, the lawyer responds correctly. He says the one who showed him mercy. But to give you an idea of just the antipathy that exists between the Jews and Samaritans at this time, he can't even bring himself to refer to this man the way he's been referred to in the entire parable, which is the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Instead, he just says, well, the one who showed mercy, I guess. I don't know. Mercy. Whatever. Right? He, he's so deliberately trying to avoid the implications of this parable that Jesus has offered. And once again, Jesus concludes with that pesky word, do. You should do this. This, this is how you should be. This is how you should live. I got three observations. Three observations from this text about being a... Neighbor, I was hoping Jay Jeems would be visible in my line of sight right now, Mr. State Farm. Let's talk about being a good neighbor. I have three observations. Number one, we are prone to justifying ourselves and minimizing the standards of righteousness. That is the universal human condition. It's it's tempting as you read this story. It's tempting to see this lawyer as the villain of the tale. And yeah. He doesn't exactly get painted in a good light here. The problem, though, is that this lawyer is is not unlike any of us. Right? We're we're all, in some way or other, at some time or other, to varying degrees, just like him. Trying to minimize the standards of righteousness, to, to lower that threshold in our minds. Trying to justify ourselves, to elevate how we look to the Lord, or at least thinking that that might trick the Lord into seeing us differently. We justify ourselves. We, we try, like this lawyer, to test God's word, that we might find loopholes, caveats, that will make us seem more righteous than we actually are. And we, we gloss over the warnings of Scripture that don't apply to, to, to Christians like me, right? Right? You see this all the time. I'm prone to doing this as I read passages like in in Ephesians or, or Corinthians where Paul rolls out a list of all kinds of sins and activities that just aren't fitting for the people of God. When you read that stuff and you kind of gloss over it because it can't possibly apply to you because I'm a Christian. You know? I feel like people do this a lot. I feel like it's an easy temptation for the people of God to fall into, to read about these vices and sins in the Bible and assume that because I'm a Christian, it doesn't apply to me. When, when really, that, like, the point here is that you should examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith by seeing if this is the fruit of your life. I mean, people will do this with big things, with small things, with things like drunkenness. Well, I'm not a drunkard because I'm a Christian. But you but 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 the other night you actually in fact were inebriated that so what Paul's saying here is that you do have a problem. This this is contradictory to to your faith in the Lord. We tend to to see ourselves as the hero of of passages like that rather than Rather than somebody who is at odds with the Lord, we're afraid, it seems, to discover that we are not in compliance with the Lord's will for his people. And so we do everything we can to avert our gaze from that, to avert the gaze of others. Even, even when it comes to things like love, which is not something to be avoided, let's say, like these sins we read about would be. But it's something to be positively pursued right, and, and sought after something to be cultivated in our lives, we kind of say, well, that this command here. Of course I'm obeying it because I'm a believer. It sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous because it is, but I think that's how a lot of us tend to live. I think it's, I think it's worth examining in our own hearts. Let's talk about this man's question for a minute, the, the motive behind his question. He says, who is my neighbor? That's a, that's a very limiting question, isn't it? It's limiting. It limits the scope of his obedience to the Lord in terms of breadth. Who, 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 am I, who am I actually supposed to have on my radar here? But also in terms of depth. Just, just how far am I supposed to go to, to love other people? It's a limiting sort of question. It's as if he's asking, what's the least I can do to be deemed righteous? I don't know about your Household, but in mine, sometimes a common question at dinner time is how much broccoli do I have to eat before I can get that dessert? And my kids are the same way. But that's our mentality, isn't it? That's how we approach things. We, we, we assume, what's the, what's the, what's the, the minimum? Where, how low can I get this bar to reap the benefits, to reap the rewards of righteousness? You know, it's as if he's asking, who among all the earth's people am I actually required to love? Who is, who is worthy? Of my compassion and mercy. It's reminiscent to me of the very first question ever asked of the Lord back in Genesis four nine. When Cain is confronted after the murder of Abel, the Lord says, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain's response is simply, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he doesn't mean that rhetorically. Because the answer is, yeah, yeah, yes. But defensively, as a way of minimizing, as a way of getting away from the implications of his disobedience, it's honestly, it's human inclination, I think, to limit our investment of love, compassion, and mercy. With people who are not like us, of course, you understand from this very story, Jesus uses a very racially charged example when it comes to this Samaritan man. This isn't just a theological disagreement. This is, this is also an, an ethnic issue that's being raised here. It, it is the outsider, the other, who is, who is the one who, who finds himself fulfilling the law. I mean, that's, that's an incredible challenge. Jesus has put forward, how, how inclined are we to, to scale back our love, compassion, and mercy with people who are unlike us, whether racially, politically, socioeconomically, theologically? We limit our investment of love with, with people that we deem to be needy or clingy, with coworkers with our literal neighbors, the people who actually live next door to us. We limit our investment of love all the time with our own, with our own households, with our spouses, with our kids. It's as if we look at the people around us, and, and sometimes we fail to recognize that these are people made in the image of God, with souls, with minds, with with real, tangible existence. And we see people more of as just, as just sort of uh, uh, avatars in a, in a game. Just kind of the sort of the, the embodiment of humanness, but not really people. Um, it's like we treat people in real life the way that we treat people oftentimes online. You know, as if, as if interacting with someone digitally makes that interaction less real. Um, you know, and this is an aside. You know, sin isn't less sinful just because it's digital. Not slander, not sexual immorality, not cynicism, not anger. It, it's not just, it's not, made palatable because you can hide behind a username or because the person on the other end is just maybe not real. And we outsource myriad human interactions to the internet while abandoning the love with which we are called to interact with people. And we don't just do that online. We do that in person a lot of times too. What's the least I can do? What's the minimum? Of course, the problem with all of this, as if that wasn't bad enough in and of itself, the the problem, as we've seen, is that this command to love your neighbor as yourself is intimately tied to the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so when we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, it, it calls into question our love for the Lord, who four times in this passage demands total obedience and love. Who are we then to seek to limit the scope and the depth of where that love goes? First John is, uh, is an apt letter for us to look at here. In this context, there are a few passages. The whole the whole letter itself reads as a sort of as a sort of litmus test. It's as if John is saying, in fact, he literally does say, "I'm writing to you so that you can rest assured that you are walking with the Lord." Here are the things. Here is the fruit. Here are the signs that you should be looking for. And really, the chief hallmark of all the things that John the apostle puts forward as a sign of God's people is that they would be loving. And so, First John chapter two, verses three through six. By this we know, he says, that we have come to know Him, the Lord if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Or 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. A second observation here. The, the love that fulfills the law's requirements then knows no bounds. If, if our chief problem here is that we tend to minimize and justify ourselves in light of the standard of love that the Lord has put before us, then likewise, and this doesn't necessarily make things better, the, the, the love that does fulfill the law's requirements is, is limitless. There's no fences around it. And there's a great irony in this story. We've, we've mentioned this already. It's not the religious experts, experts, but the Samaritan with a better comprehension of the law. And that's because this is not merely just checking the box, right? Uh, with all my heart, with all my soul, you know. I did it. That, that's the way the lawyer thinks. But that's not what it means to actually be guided by, driven by, Love. This, this love we're talking about here is not just a checkbox. It, it is a total, a total overhaul of the human life. It requires all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. It requires loving your neighbor as your very self, which is not just, I think we, we, we think about this. We go, okay, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, how do I, you know, how, how do I... How do I take care of me? You know, me time. You know, treat yourself, right? How do do I do that? We tend to think of loving your neighbor as yourself, as some sort of special above and beyond kind of love. But, But think about this. You don't love yourself that way. You don't take care of yourself that way. Every given moment of your life, and there's nothing wrong with this, is built around taking care of your basic needs, you're hungry, so you go and you get something to eat. You're tired, you want a nap, so you stop whatever it is you're doing, and you go, you go sleep. You, you rarely sit back and go, hmm, how can I love me today? I deserve a little TLC from yours truly. Nobody does that. All right, I guess some people do that, but nobody, I mean, you're not, you shouldn't do that. Don't live that way, right? And likewise then, our love for other people is not, it shouldn't be oriented around this sort of stop and, and reevaluate everything. What's the best way I can show my love to this person and then be done? How can I make up for the years of lovelessness I've treated this person with with what, a simple moment, maybe a gesture? That, that's, that's not whole life embodiment of the love that the Lord calls us to. Jesus corrects this question, who is my neighbor, with a better one. He says, how can I be a good neighbor? That, that's the question the lawyer should be asking. How can I be a good neighbor? And to be a good neighbor in this instance means expanding, reaching out rather than contracting and limiting the love of God. It means going forward rather than pulling back. And so Jesus, Luke, uses words like compassion, like mercy to describe this kind of love. The, the word for compassion, the Greek word that he uses here, is the same word that, that we derive the word uh, for, for your spleen from, All right? It's a, it's a guttural, internal, just kind of welling up sort of feeling. It's, a, it's an emotional response to somebody, we give you some examples from, from Luke's gospel, and of course these examples are of the Lord as he uses this word. These are the other places in Luke's gospel where he uses this word for compassion. It's as if, as if we can draw some conclusions here about what this should look like for us as well. Luke chapter 7 verses 12 and 13, as he, Jesus, drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her he had compassion on her and said to her do not weep all right verse uh, Luke chapter 15 verse 20 again speaking not necessarily of Jesus but in the in the parable of the prodigal son his father saw him the prodigal and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him it's an instinct It's something that wells up from the heart of a person who loves the Lord, that they would then go forward almost unavoidably in love towards other people. Another word that's used to describe the Samaritan, the lawyer uses it. He says, the one who had, the one who showed mercy. And mercy has a sort of undeserved quality to it, doesn't it? Mercy is something that you just kind of dole out. It's not something that is, it's not transactional. Luke 1, 50, and this is at the very beginning of this gospel, describing the nature of this kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that John the Baptist would herald. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Luke 1, and seventy through 79, You, child, this is Zechariah speaking of his son John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's it's, it's It's the summary word, you could say, of the kingdom of God as Jesus inaugurates it on earth. Mercy. And it shows itself, it's demonstrated here through initiative, through kindness, through generosity, through hospitality. We tend to think of these things as some sort of spiritual above and beyond kind of gift only for a select few within God's people. But that's not the point of this passage. This is is universally true or it should be for all of God's people. If a Samaritan can do this, right? Right? What about, what about the people of God? Shouldn't they be much more like this? In the end, nothing short of pure, undefiled love for God and for others will suffice. I want to pause here and just, just think about this for a moment. Um, I find that sometimes for, for uh, theological types, people who are really devoted to good doctrine, good, good teaching, the, the, the power of God's word, right? We tend often to be uncomfortable with all this talk about love, right? Because on the one hand, truth at all costs, that kind of rally cry can sometimes feel at odds with love. Like there, there necessarily has to be some sort of compromise there. So that love is sometimes even suspected implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly as a pathway to apostasy, you know. If I err too much on the side of love, then I'm probably going to like end up, you know, watching Joel Osteen in the morning. And I don't I don't want that. You know. But but hear me now. Love love. Love that is actually described in scripture as the hallmark of God's people. I get that truth and doctrine, this is important, the church is called a pillar and buttress of the truth. But listen to John 13, 35. This is what Jesus says about his disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. language that word disciples you know that's a theological term you 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 see that to be a disciple is to be a student it's to follow a way it's to follow a path it's to adhere to a particular doctrine and, and and knowledge and understanding so when jesus says that you'll they'll know you're my disciples they'll know you're the ones with the right doctrine they'll know you're the ones who 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 actually know what the lord has spoken when he says that, the litmus test that he gives is not the terms that you can spell out, but it is that you are or are not loving. They'll know no, you're my disciples because you love one another. That, that's the hallmark. And so leading with love is not necessarily compromising truth. I mean, even in this story, Jesus uses a Samaritan. That that's not a sign from Jesus that, that Samaritanism is now coequal with, with with obedience to the law of God. He's not making a statement about Samaritans somehow sneaking their way into the kingdom of God because they're compassionate. He's not, he's not necessarily agreeing with. Them. I mean, you look at stories like the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is very clear, you got this wrong. And nevertheless, the appearance of theological soundness is also not a guarantee of righteousness. In fact, love is actually the only way that we can even overcome sin in ourselves and in others. If you look at James 5:20, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, and that takes love, by the way. Will will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of of sins. First Peter four eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You want you want purity among God's people. You you want to see people's lives changed for the gospel. You love them. You love them. But I I feel like it is possible, especially in this year of all years and this season of all seasons, it's possible that some of God's people might be more distinguished by politics and hobby horses than by what the Lord has actually required, which is that we love him with our whole lives and that we have a love for other people that rivals even our love for our very selves. It's it's tempting, it's tempting to be better versed in statistics about the effectiveness of masks than the word of God. And Some of us right now are tempted to be better known for the freedoms that we insist upon, whether earthly or spiritual, rather than the consideration that we give to other people. Now listen... These things are worth discussing. The Lord has put us in this time and place. We, We are his ambassadors in the world. We're called to be people who love the truth. But to be known for these things, rather than the love of God and the love of people, reveals idolatry, not righteousness. Because at its heart, this whole episode, this whole narrative is really about worship. Uh, and, and what's so beautiful then about this story is that the one whom we worship with all of our love has already traveled down this very road for us. For us. And, and that's my third observation here Jesus is the good neighbor who shows us compassion and mercy and empowers us to do the same. Jesus is the good neighbor that we need, and he's the one who empowers us to follow him down the path that he's already blazed for us. Maybe as as you've heard this passage, you've panicked because you feel like this word, that pesky word, do, keeps coming up and it's uncomfortable because the word do seems to be at odds with grace. Doesn't it? We're uncomfortable when we think about the law. We're uncomfortable when we think about obedience because as as people who are well trained in the language of grace, we know that there is nothing we can do to satisfy the Lord's just demands. And yet here Jesus is telling this lawyer, you should go do this. This is how you should live. Well, love both for God and for our neighbors, is itself an expression of faith. Um, James 2, 14 through 18 says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, in this case, the, the work of love? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, Well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, by the love that I exhibit towards the Lord and towards others. Maybe you're painfully aware of your own inadequacy and shortcomings here. I am. Um, I, I wish that we were in the middle of 2 Peter right now, and I could have picked whatever is next in that letter, rather than this, because as I'm reading it and studying, I'm thinking, well, we just haven't preached on this ever, I guess. I don't know. And uh, so I'll do that. And as I'm studying it, and you know, Saturday afternoon's rolling around, and I'm like, there's, there's no going back here. Uh, I'm going to have to preach to myself as much as to anybody else. Maybe you're aware of your inadequacy. I found this quote yesterday. It's lengthy. You guys are big boys and girls. You can handle it. It's from Herman Bovink, the Dutch defender of doctrine. Uh, and it's from a, a, a book of his um, called The Wonderful Works of God. I just kind of stumbled upon it. it, has, it uh, I don't know what he was thinking. Here it was just kind of sitting there for me says this, be that as it may, as much as sure, this much as sure, that the life of service for humanity, of love for the neighbor, is not rooted in the law of God. It loses its force and its character. After all, the love for one's neighbor is not a self-vindicating thing, which comes up quite spontaneously and naturally out of the human heart. It is a feeling, rather an action and a service, which require tremendous willpower and which must be constantly maintained against the formidable forces of self-concern and of self-interest. Moreover, such love of the neighbor frequently gets little support from the neighbor himself. Right? Man, I want to love you. Help me. Help me to love you. You've said that before. I've said that. People generally are not so lovable that we should naturally, without exertion and struggle, cherish and love them as we do ourselves. Indeed, the love for the neighbor can maintain itself only if on the one hand it is based on and laid upon us by the law of God and only if on the other hand that same God grants us the desire to live uprightly according to all of his commandments. Yeah, love is hard. Loving other people is tough. People are messed up. You're messed up. You don't want to do what you should want to do. And that makes this whole thing one big mess. So when you hear this passage, you hear this parable, you may panic, you may think, I can't, there's nothing, I have nothing to offer here. What am I supposed to do? That's a good place to be. Because the beautiful thing is that the Lord, he goes before you, and the Lord Jesus himself, he empowers you by his Holy Spirit that you would actually live this way. See, no one demonstrates these qualities better than our triune God, whose very essence of being triune trinitarian is that we see loving communion between the father the son and the holy spirit just in and of himself who he is he he doesn't need anyone he is perfectly self-sufficient even in his love the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. And that is the God that we worship, which means that just in and of himself, our God can be called love. And this is the God who then sets in motion our whole salvation. This is the God who sends, who sends forth his Son. And we might know him and worship him and come to love him and therefore love the father as he himself loves the father and by the power of the Holy Spirit do so. And not only that, but that by his spirit we might then also love one another. Turning back again to 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see that it it is rooted in this, that we know love, which is that he laid down his life for us. Not, Not the other way around that I would initiate this somehow, that I would kind of conjure up the, the love that I'm called to abide by, but rather that I would be a conduit of channel through which his love might actually flow to, to other needy people just like you and me. First John 4, 9, and this, is the, and this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the pleasing, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John's not saying as a form of like payback. I think this is a cause and effect that he's describing. If God loved us this way, the natural result of that should be that we likewise love one another. That, like, that's how you know that the Lord loves you in this particular way to save you, to draw you out of sin, out of a, a life devoid of love, is that you then become a person known for love above, above everything else. No one has ever seen God, John tells us, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, the hero of this parable is not the good Samaritan, but the great Savior. Jesus, Jesus is pointing this lawyer, he's pointing us to himself. How can you be a good neighbor? Look, look to Jesus. Because, because here's the thing, our rescue at the hands of Christ is far greater than anything this half-dead man receives on the side of the road. Right? we weren 't half dead, we weren't on our way to dead you you and me if you uh, apart from Christ, we are utterly completely dead d e d dead Jesus, he rescued us, we were dead in our sins we weren't just unclean like this Samaritan man or like this man with blood pouring out of his body and all these wounds we, we We were absolutely unworthy. We're not just victims of a fallen world. In fact, if you're honest, you recognize that you're a victim of your own self-inflicted wounds half the time. Right? And even in the midst of that, Jesus comes across the road and he he picks us up, knowing that we are our own worst enemies knowing that we would in a million different ways continually spit on the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. But out of his great love for us, overlooking all the things, that the huge chasm that exists between us and him, he reaches down, he picks us up, and he breathes life into dead hearts. And he, and he, and he, he equips us he prepares us, he, he enables and empowers us that we might be that, that we might demonstrate that same kind of love for all kinds of people. So given the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, mentioned in, in Galatians. We're, we're on an imperfect trajectory. We have the Holy Spirit, we've been redeemed, rescued by the Lord and yet we all know that we're on this imperfect trajectory, but it is still a trajectory towards loving obedience. Which means that we, we as God's people should be known for compassion, should be known for mercy, should be known for the initiative that we take in loving other people, for sacrificial kindness, for generosity. Not just not financially necessarily, but, but generosity of our very selves. I'm gonna give you more time than you deserve. I'm gonna give you more of my level of interest than I'm giving you right now. Hospitality. And in this way, we are witnesses of the gospel hope by which we have been saved. So I'll leave you with, with this question. What if Christians were known, not just for our biblical convictions, But also for the way that we boldly, maybe even illogically, loved other people. Just like Jesus loved us. Let me pray. Father, we are chastened, we're humbled. And at the same time, can't help but being absolutely relieved at the work that you have done for us, the love that you have shown us. Even as we worry maybe about the level of love that we've shown others, even as maybe today we need to repent for the lack of love that we've demonstrated. We can rejoice in the fact that you, you have loved us with an unfailing love. One that cannot be thwarted by anything. No powers, no kingdoms, no heights, no depths. N- nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is ours because you, you will it, you've determined it, you have set it forward, and it will not fail. And at the cross, you perfectly pour out your love on us, your people, by the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us in eternity past, that we might know you, that we might call out to you, our Father, and that we might love you and love others with the love with which you have loved us. Far from a burden, Lord. This is, this is a privilege that you call us to imitate you in, in the very essence of who you are, that we might be drawn into the fellowship of love that is yours, and that we might beckon others to do the same that we might go across the road out of our way, that we might show others the love that you have for us. Even as, we, even as we confront sin, even as we refuse to go along with the trappings and ridiculous theories of this world, and yet we are called still to love people made in your image, people whom you have elected from eternity past, that they might know you, that they might call out to you with the breath that you have given them because we breathed out your love among them. Lord, would you quicken our hearts? Would you, would you cause us to deeply feel and to know this love that you have for us? Would we likewise then be not perfect, but, but maybe, maybe consistent, faithful reflections of your love? And we ask that as we continue to, to worship you here. In Jesus' name, amen.